Okay, if you would now open your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 22. If you're new or you're visiting with us this morning, um, we're going through a series in the book of Job. Job's quite a long book. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job. And there's a series or a cycle of three rounds of speeches, each involving three of Job's friends. I, I put that loosely. Um, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. Uh, they're all very, very similar in what they say to one another, but they all refer to or rely, if you will, on a different um, source of authority. For Eliphaz, it's his experiences that he has, and they're often quite mystical and supernatural. Um, for Bildad, it's tradition. Uh, it's what people down throughout the ages have taught. And for Zophar, it's his own reason or logic. Um, each one of them, though, are relying on what you might call a transactional theology. It's, it's basically the religion of man of how we would all think without the revelation of God's word. Because it's all really based on a system of works, that everything depends on us. And uh, so today, what we're going to be looking at is Eliphaz's third and final speech in chapter 22, uh, and we need really a great degree of wisdom and of discernment as we read this uh, because so much of it is going to sound right, but it's profoundly wrong. Uh, and so as we come to God's word this morning, uh, let's pray and ask that God's Holy Spirit would do just that. He would give us discernment. Lord, what a great joy and delight it is to come together to worship you this morning and to fellowship with your people. And Father, we pray that this morning you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word, but that, Lord, we would particularly be discerning because we know that our enemy, the devil, the evil one, seeks to deceive us. And so, Father, we pray that as we come and as we look at your word this morning, you would help us to discern truth from error. And Lord, we pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. And that most of all, Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus, our Saviour, high and lifted up. And that we would know more and more of his love for us and what he has done through the cross. So Lord, we ask all of these things confidently because we pray them in his name. Amen. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless you demand security oh sorry you demanded security from your brothers for no reason you stripped men of their clothing leaving them naked you gave no water to the weary and you withheld you withheld food from the hungry though you were a powerful man owning land an honored man living on it and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. 
That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. Is not God in the heights of heaven? And see how lofty are the highest stars. Yet you say, what does God know? Does he judge through such darkness? Thick clouds veil him, so he does not see us. And he goes about in the vaulted heavens. Will you keep to the old path that evil men have trod? They were carried off before their time, their foundations washed away by a flood. They said to God, leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet it was he who filled their houses with good things. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. The innocent mock them, saying, Surely our foes are destroyed and fire devours their wealth. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks in the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Surely then you will find delight in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done and light will shine on your ways. When men are brought low and you say, lift them up, then he will save the downcast. He will deliver even one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. There comes a time where we wrestle with the effects of sin and its result in our fallen world. Whether it's a broken relationship, the ongoing battle with the world, the flesh and the devil, or maybe it's in particular concerns over our own health, our own physical frailty. Our world is fundamentally broken, isn't it? And when everything around us is dark and depressing, it can be really, really difficult to trust God. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the bottle of our lives can be shaken through all kinds of painful and unforeseen circumstances. And what comes out at that particular time is highly informative, is it not? Because sadly, what we often see come out of our own hearts, indeed our very lips, can be anger, doubt, or even despair, rather than settled faith and trust in God. We often sing the song, Blessed Be Your Name, here at Cornerstone. And I'm always struck by the verses which say, Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me. 
when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. But then it immediately goes on to say, blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. These verses are almost identical to what Job himself says to his wife when she callously says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. But in response, he says to her, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And then the Bible says, in all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. It's an inspiring example of what it means to trust God when the lights have gone out, when everything around us is dark and you're experiencing trouble or suffering rather than God's blessing. Can we still bless God and acknowledge that he is good at those times? And not just when circumstances are good, but that God himself remains good. And that he is good all the time. As we've been seeing, uh, though, Job's three friends have a horribly deficient view of the Lord. It's more in keeping with the philosophical worldview of deism than it is with the true and living God of the Bible. Deism is the worldview which simply says that God is like the divine watchmaker. He winds up the universe at the very beginning of time and then he leaves it alone to function on a preordained or predetermined course, a set of principles. It's what I've been referring to um, throughout this series in the book of Job as transactional theology and it's a belief that the universe operates as some kind of cosmic poker machine. Religious performance or morality goes in and then it's expected that blessing and divine favour always comes out. Alternatively, if one is irreligious or sinful, then you should expect life to automatically go bad for you. It's what you might say is the sound of music approach to life. Because as Maria sings about Captain Von Trapp in the famous love song, always the greatest heresy comes through these uh, tunes which sound the best. Something good. Perhaps I had a wicked, her a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's the same kind of theology as each one of Job's friends. And the fact that it sounds so reasonable and plausible should warn us all about how deceitful it is and deceptive. Each one of their view is based on a different type of authority. 
as we've been seeing, whether it be experience, whether it be reason or whether it be tradition, but as we've been seeing, it's more in common with Eastern mysticism than it is with the Word of God. It's effectively the belief in karma, that a person is automatically repaid in this life as well as in the next one for the good or the bad that they have done. But what is completely missing from this philosophical worldview or framework is any idea of God's mercy or grace. There's no idea of there being a saviour because it all depends upon ourselves. When you look at the book of Job like this, you suddenly realise that it's actually not so much about the subject of suffering as it is about the gospel. Of how in the midst of our own spiritual depravity or darkness, the light of Christ's salvation shines through. You turn with me to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 22 and I'll show you what I mean. The Hebrew in Job is notoriously difficult to translate. And unfortunately, by this stage in the book, even most even the most enthusiastic reader or commentator can start to get tired and feel like giving up. But there's a particularly significant question surrounding how to translate God's word here, which I think really helps to understand what Eliphaz is saying. You see, the NIV translates verses 2 and 3 as saying this, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Now, the emphasis in the NIV translation is upon ourselves. The original language of the Bible, though, actually points in the other direction, and it makes God himself the focus. If you take a look at your sermon outlines, you'll see what I think is a more accurate translation, and it's provided by a commentator called John, John Walton. I only say this so that you don't think that I'm coming up with this myself. I'm not an expert in Hebrew. Uh, because you see, in contrast to the NIV version of the Bible, Walton's translation of verses 2 and 3 is like this. Can a wise mediator do any good for a human being serving on behalf of God? Can such a mediator, which Job wants, bring a human any benefit? Will God respond favorably when you justify yourself? Will there be a gain when you give full account of your ways? Now, why this is so important is it because it gets to the heart of Eliphaz's accusation against Job. Eliphaz is convinced that Job is guilty of having sinned. And that's why he's suffering as terribly as he is. And so Eliphaz is saying, in effect, what good could possibly come from having God act as your mediator? What would that do? It would only bring to you condemnation. Eliphaz's whole religious philosophy is based upon his own legalistic performance. And because he himself is the focus, he has nothing for contempt, or nothing but contempt rather, for a God who might act as a mediator or a saviour 
The idea that God himself should take the loving initiative to rescue a person from their sin. That just doesn't fit into the way which Eliphaz believes that the world would work. What good would that do, he says? But according to his transactional um, theology, religion goes in, divine favour comes out. Faithlessness or sin goes in and it always results in God's curse or his judgment. The real problem with this kind of view, though, is that it has just enough truth in it to make it sound plausible. But at the same time, it doesn't have enough truth in it to make it ultimately right. If you cast your eyes over what Eliphaz says to Job throughout the rest of the chapter, I'll show you what I mean. Verses 4 and 5. Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? Now we'll get to how just how great a sinner Eliphaz thinks Job is in just a moment. But I want you to focus on what he just said in verse 4. Could it be that Job's piety was actually the cause or trigger, you might say, for Job's suffering like he is? Eliphaz scoffs at even the question, assuming that the answer has to obviously be no. But we know better, don't we? Because we have the benefit of God's revelation. Back in chapters 1 and 2, the Lord himself had said to Satan that he should consider his servant Job. Why? Well, he said, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he says to the devil, he doesn't, he doesn't just say to, this, to the devil once, but twice. And so we, the reader, understand that Job is in fact suffering precisely because he is so pious. Because the Lord God himself had boasted in his servant and had even suggested to the Satan that he put him to the test. Where have you gone? Oh, I've been roaming throughout all the earth, looking for someone to devour. Have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered how pious he is? How he fears evil? Or how he fears God and shuns evil? Eliphaz then is clearly wrong about his view of God. All of these horrible things which Job is experiencing is actually precisely because of Job's piety and righteousness. But because he's operating out of a system of legalistic works righteousness, Eliphaz even starts to view Job wrongly. For not only does he say that Job's wickedness is great, remember back 1 and 2, God says his declaration is that he was blameless and upright. Eliphaz's view of Job is that his wickedness is great and he even goes on to say that his sins are endless. And then he proceeds to give a number of examples, all of which are a figment of his own imagination. For example, verse 6, he says that, Job, you were so shrewd in business 
that you, you, that you ripped people off. You literally took the shirts off men's backs. Verse 7, he says, Job was so stingy that he refused to give people who were starving of food or water. Verse 8 and 9, even though he was rich and powerful, apparently Job even sent widows away destitute. That is why, he says, snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. According to Eliphaz, Job is suffering because Job has sinned. And so his friend deserves everything that is happening to him. He goes on to say a whole lot of other things in the rest of the chapter, which is totally in keeping with this whole transactional approach. But what he can't see is that his theological reasoning here is more in keeping with Satan's than it is with the Lord's. You see, the devil had said to God back in chapters 1 and 2, that Job only worshipped him because of what he received. That was the underlying motive, Satan said, to Job's faith. Job only worshipped the giver because of what he could get. But now Eliphaz is arguing in exactly the same way. He says, verse 21, Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. It all sounds eerily similar to what Satan later says to Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, we're told, the devil led him up to a high place and in an instant showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. The temptation, friends, is that the reason for worship is so we can achieve fame and pleasure and riches. And it's of the devil. You see the problem? A guy I knew was doing a, a scripture seminar in a school in Sydney. And some of the guys who were doing it with him, there's a couple of churches doing it together, some of the guys uh, who were doing it with him went to a well-known Pentecostal church in Sydney. The prizes that day for correct answers to various questions were not lollies, but iPads. To make things even worse, after the seminar was over, one of the guys showed the kids his brand new sports car. And he said to him effectively this, if you worship Jesus, this can all be yours too. One of the kids there that day was smart enough to say, ha, my brother's a drug dealer, he's got exactly the same car. So why should I worship Jesus? What that young non-Christian high schooler was getting at was right.
there, is, there has to be a more profound reason for worshipping God, for following Jesus, than just getting more and more stuff. The chapter ends, though, on an ultimately ironic note. Because Eliphaz says that if Job repents of his sin, then he might even be able to help others who are sinful like he once was. He says in verse 30, He will deliver even one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. The irony here is that this is precisely what Job will do for Eliphaz. Oh, didn't see that coming. The Lord tells Job in chapter 42 to act as a high priest and to make a sacrifice of atonement for his three friends. No less than seven bulls and seven rams, which is extraordinary in its expense. But that's how great their sin was. The self-righteousness and pride of assuming that they could ever be good enough for God by their own works is an egregious sin which needs atonement. Job's response to Eliphaz picks up on all of this and basically Job asks him two distinct questions. The first is his desire for a mediator in verse 23 and the second is his longing for a judge in chapter 24. It's hard, of, it's hard for us to fully appreciate the gravity of what Job is asking for here, I think, because we live on this side of the cross. We've discovered that Christ Jesus is the very thing that Job is asking for. But we have to keep in mind that Job is living at a time which was, this was still way, way, way in the future. But just stop and consider these questions then. Without the coming of Christ... How do you truly engage with God? There's a reason why the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when Christ died. And that's because he was opening up for us a way to come directly into God's presence. Hebrews 4, we read, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And then the passage goes on to say, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I have the opportunity to do something which even Job himself couldn't have even possibly imagined. We have a mediator in heaven right now interceding for us before the Father. And what this means practically is that we always have someone who is speaking to the Father in our defence, who is especially there to help us in our hour of need. Because Jesus knows precisely what it means to have been tempted, to be all alone, just like we often are. He went through exactly the same kinds of things that you and I went through. The only difference is he never sinned. 
That's why we can now approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Do you see? In contrast, all Job can say in verses 2 and 3 is, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. I, if only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. Job doesn't know where to go to find God. But we do. For as Jesus himself says in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All of which means that Jesus is where the fullness of God dwells. And he has come to earth so that we might be brought to heaven. Not in a legalistic sense of our own religious performance, but by, if I can put it this way, the transactional truth of the gospel. That he is the perfect and sinless one has laid down his life for us in the perfect act of atonement for we who are guilty. It's the complete opposite to how Eliphaz believed that the universe operated. For in Christ we see what Christopher Ashe calls the scandal of redemptive suffering. Or as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the greatest transaction of all, isn't it? But Job doesn't just stop there because he knows that we not only need a mediator, we actually also need a judge. For Job knows that not everyone will turn to the Lord in seeking forgiveness. That there'll be some here who will have heard everything that I've, just got, uh, that I've just gone on to say and they'll go, yeah, nah, so what? As he mentions back in chapter 21, Job is fully aware that some proudly thumb their noses at God and they even have the audacity to say to him, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? Such is the arrogant boasting of many. What's more, in complete contradiction to all forms of transactional theology so eloquently espoused by Job's friends, these kinds of people who say and do those things, they seem to completely get away with it. They steal, they murder, they commit adultery, Job says in verse 24 or chapter 24. And yet, even sometimes Job says, God does step in and judge them for their sin. Sometimes they get away with it, but sometimes they don't. See, the problem with the whole system of karma is it's just too simplistic. It doesn't meet reality. Like the rich man who builds bigger and bigger barns 
How often does the Lord say to a man or a woman, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You thought you were so wise in building up all of this wealth for yourself, but you've been so foolish. As Job says at the end of the chapter, but God drags away the mighty by his power. Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. For a little while they are exalted and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all the others. They are cut off like heads of grain. If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? There's this terrifying section in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, where Jesus is described as being like a son of man sitting on a cloud. Uh, that's saying that he's not just a human being, but in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, that Jesus is the long-awaited God-man, the Christ, the one who will be given all authority over heaven and earth, and of which all the nations will come and worship. And it's further substantiated by the fact that in Revelation 14, he's described as wearing a crown of gold upon his head. But the thing which is really terrifying is that in his hand, he holds a sickle or scythe. And all of a sudden, another angel comes out of the temple and they cry out in a loud uh, voice, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then it says, And so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. And as I said, it's a terrifying, awe-inspiring picture of what Jesus will do and I think he is doing. Because he is both saviour or mediator and judge. And this is once again precisely what Job longs to know. Oh, if only we had both, he says. And you and I have seen it. How can unbelievers get away with such flagrant wickedness? And look, can I just say, if you've never been in business or you've never been in a situation where someone is stolen, stolen from you, you don't really feel the injustice of it. But if you are in those situations, you know. You know how desperately you cry out that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. And you cling to that as a promise. Because the courts in our system seem to not do a, a good enough job at that point. How can people cheat in business or kill another person or break their marriage vows and seem to get away with it? It's just not <laughs> right. And all too often, those who are righteous suffer and those who are wicked prosper. They seem to get away with it. What we know through the New Testament, though, is that Jesus is going to make everything right. 
because Jesus is going to act with perfect mercy and justice. Mercy for those who turn to him in repentance and faith and justice of his judgment for those who refuse. Because in the person and work of Jesus, both Job's desire for a mediator and his longing for a judge is perfectly fulfilled. Now, what does this mean for us then today in practice? I think it means this. We are never alone. That even when we're in the darkest, deepest, darkest place, you can always trust that the Lord is with you. In just a moment, we're going to sing the song, I Will Trust You in the Darkness. It's a beautiful song and every verse is meaningful. Uh, Rob Smith, the person who wrote this, put it together after his father died. And so just like the situation Job found himself in, it comes from a place of sadness and grief. But let me just read to you the words of the opening verse. It says, I will trust you in the darkness. I will serve you in my pain. I will worship in the wilderness and will follow to the end. For you are the suffering shepherd and you know your sheep by name. So I will trust you in the darkness once again. You know, friend, maybe this is the kind of situation you find yourself in today. Where you feel like everything around you is sad and bleak. And can I just say that if that's you, then be encouraged because Christ will never let you out of his hand. You are safe and secure in his love. Because your relationship with God is founded on the work, not of you, but of Christ and Christ alone. The one who is our judge is also our saviour, praise God. For as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, because we have been justified, such is the confidence we have that we can even rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that even they have a purpose. That God is so working everything together for good that whatever painful trial that we are going through right now is producing perseverance, character. But you know what? Most of all, hope. Hope. Paul says, and hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That's the scandal of redemptive suffering, friends. That even when we were still powerless, Christ died for us. Not when we were righteous or even good, because there's no one good. No, Christ died for us while we were sinners. So rest assured in his mercy of his forgiveness, even though everything around you is falling apart. Because it doesn't depend upon you, it depends on him. Put your hope and trust in the Lord because in just a little while, the light of his life will shine through. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a great promise and what a ray of light your word gives us in the gospel. That though we undeserving have been made clean, we have been forgiven, we have been accepted, we have been redeemed. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us and we pray that you would fill us with your spirit that as the Apostle Paul says, we might know 
your love by the experience and power of your Holy Spirit. As we sing in response to your word now, Lord, lift our eyes to you. Take our eyes away from the sadness and the, and the darkness and lift our eyes to heaven, Lord, where we can see that we are loved, that we can see that we're accepted, where we can see that we're forgiven. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your son's infinite, infinite, preciousness of his death and thank you so much for the preciousness of the presence of your holy spirit we ask for your blessing we thank you for it we pray it in jesus name amen